0: You're listening to All Things Video, a podcast dedicated to uncovering the past and charting the future of the online video ecosystem. This episode is brought to you by Epidemic Sound, the company reimagining music licensing for the digital age. Epidemic's library contains tens of thousands of tracks that you can license a la carte or on a subscription basis. Unlike other music licensing companies, Epidemic Sound owns its entire catalog and makes tracks available via one straightforward license to cover all your needs worldwide and in perpetuity. No more headaches around usage reporting, performance royalties, or murky rights ownership. It's better for the artists and better for you, the creator. So whatever your music needs, Epidemic Sound has got you covered. You're listening to All Things Video. I'm your host, James Creech, and today's guest is James DiGiulio, co-founder and CEO of Tongle. James, welcome to the show. Thanks,
1: James. Excited to be here with you. Yeah, right on.
0: Glad we get to do this here in Tongle HQ. Right. Beautiful Santa Juan. In the woman. heart of it. Yeah. That's right. Well, let's jump in. I, I thought we'd kind of take a stab at understanding your career, <laughs> first from fixed income analyst for Lehman Brothers, and then you say, Oh, well, <laughs> I'm going to make my way into media and entertainment. How did that come about? Yeah, just I, I think that the Lehman Brothers
1: thing was a weird blip on the radar. I, you know, I went to a pretty conservative East Coast school, and... Uh, they didn't really train people to do this. I don't think anybody actually trained people to do this, but uh, it was really good at, at getting people jobs in, like, in places like Wall Street and as, as uh, and getting people into law school and things like that. And, uh, yeah, it's still remarkable to everybody I know that I actually convinced somebody at an investment bank to hire me. Uh, anybody who knows me knows that's a little bit of a weird combination. But eventually, you know, we know what happened to that bank, so maybe they didn't have good hiring decisions. <laughs> 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 Which, you know, ultimately was, was just a stepping stone to... To getting here and where I wanted to be, um, you know, I, was, I remember being on a, uh, on a work trip and visiting a friend of mine who had moved right from college to L.A., and I remember just sitting out here and like, why the fuck don't I live here? So, yeah, what <laughs> yeah. am I still doing in the yeah, yeah, what am I doing? <laughs> I don't like this. I don't like this job. I don't really want to be anybody else at this place. And I, um, you know, I always really wanted to get into the entertainment business one way or another, and I didn't know if it was music or if it was movies or TV or whatever, and I just said, you know, I just need to get myself in the place where I think things could happen, and that was the plan. So why entertainment? What attracted you to the entertainment You space? know, I was a kid who loved movies, you, you, you know? Going back to having, like, the gigantic JVC sort of camcorder deal and uh, forcing my sisters to act out into bad films that were directed by, you know, an eight-year-old at the point, and just always... I mean, it was like a seminal moment in my life when we got, like, the first... HBO came into the house, you know, and suddenly there was just unlimited access to movies and I remember that pretty vividly As like five or six
0: years old and it was just it was just awesome, you know The world just sort of opened up. Very cool So when did you make your way out to LA and how did you end up at Paramount?
1: So a little long sort of long and convoluted story. Uh, I moved out here in 2000 uh, the end of that year and um you know, I, I was, it was really odd because I had this job that my parents were really happy about, this sort of, like, you know, although I didn't really, like, look right in the suit and all those things. And, I, you know, I had, a, I had a, like, a pretty good job. And I came out here and I kind of pressed my network and um, I couldn't believe that nobody wouldn't hire me. Like, I could not not get a job. You know, I went from, like, being, like, you know, a rising star, you know, to com- what I thought was a competitive place to literally not being able to get a job getting somebody coffee, which was kind of hard to deal with. So I one day I sat down and I made a list and said who would I work for for free and the first name on my list was uh, was Harold Ramis um, because I was like largely really inspired and loved those that was like when I, you know and I was like you know eight or nine years old probably too young to watch those movies (laughs) like really just getting from everything from you know Caddyshack to back to school to even a movie like Club Paradise I just loved everything that the guy did and um and I knew I just wanted to find a way to touch that to get close to it so that was one of the names on on like I made a list of who I wanted. he was one of them the other one was Robert Evans because at the time this is dating myself like you came out to LA and like the cool thing to do would be to have a copy of The Kid's Days in the Picture on, on audio cassette. Okay, so Robert Evans was, this, um, was a film producer who was, you know, his um, originally his family, there was a company called Evan Pacone, which was a famous clothing brand in like the 50s and, and 60s that his family, he and his brother, started. And his claim to fame at, the, at that point was that he, um, he, they were the first clothing manufacturer to, manu- to make pants for women. So his joke, of course, all the time was that, you know, from early on he was in women's pants, um, so, but so he was a kind of an odd entrepreneurial guy who wound up in L.A., was discovered by the wife of Irving Thalberg, who was like the boy genius of MGM in the 20s. If you've ever read the Scott Fitzgerald book, Last Tycoon, there's actually making there's a film adaptation of that, I think, coming out at some point. But it's, it's really based the Monroe star character in that book, Last Tycoon, is based on Thalberg. His wife was you know, heavily involved in, the, and he died really young, until like maybe 27 years old, um, and was running MGM. was like this boy genius. and had a heart defect. And uh, his wife was, in the 50s, was responsible for making the story of his life. And she spotted, this is a real tangent, but this is what you're going to get with me, James. I love it, please. <laughs> she spotted Robert Evans swimming at the Beverly Hills Hotel and cast him in this movie and he became like wasn't an actor was out there selling women's pants and became uh, like a movie star overnight like kind of like a heartthrob and you know the time he was 30 or 32 whatever he was running paramount and he he essentially was the guy a lot of turmoil this book is like an absolute like top five hollywood memoirs definitely on my list so and it's an audio cassette and he's got this really deep baritone voice that sounds like this and, and so it was like kind of a cult thing and so it basically tells his rise and fall through saving paramount in the 70s and being the guy who greenlit the godfather and and produced chinatown like all this like cinema of the 70s so i was like i was like really upset in two different ways i was obsessed with these two people the first person i called was i called evans's office and i I said, I'll come work to you for free. And they said, no, we can't do it. <laughs> so I'm like, All right. that, was, that was my first example of like somebody who was talent, like young talent wanting to get into the system and basically just not even like, hey, I'll do it for free. And they wouldn't even let me do it. And then eventually I, um, I talked my way into into Fox and uh, at Harold Ramis' company. And that was like, I, was the, I, felt, oh, I felt I was like 23. I felt like the world's oldest living intern at the time. And I did that for the better part of a year. But that's where I really started to learn the business of films you know just everything that people do like understanding like hey this is how a submission works and this is how you evaluate a screenplay and all that stuff you know it was like my addendum to College. I yeah,
0: so that was your grad school, right? Yeah. In the, in the film business. Well, my
1: college. real grad school was at Paramount, which was okay. like this really bizarre, <laughs> bizarre time. So, so from there, I had kind of heard through the the grapevine that that there was a, a job opening as as, this, as Robert Evans' assistant. I basically did everything I could to get this job. I remember like, writing like handwritten letters, and you know, I guess that old school sensibility paid off, <laughs> you know. Uh, and so eventually, I got that job, and I wound up working there, and I went from being his assistant to running his company few years
0: wow yeah and what did you work on during your time there i mean you spent four years at paramount yeah
1: i mean it was well a lot of it was the reason why i started this company which was like i can't believe how much how long it takes to do anything but there you know we worked on um we worked on a a documentary called the kid stays in the picture based on his life was directed by brett morgan Uh, was like the very first thing i ever worked on through we did a um an art house piece called How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. <laughs> and, uh, and that was pretty successful in a $100 million movie. That was like, it was a really interesting thing. and It was an ex- interesting experience for me that that Bob and his then partner, Christine Peters, had done. And Christine had found this basically stick figure drawing book. And said, so, you know, there's something here. It was just raw input for a film and it ultimately becomes a you know big hit movie. So that was like, you know, hands-on first kind of run at it. And it was kind of a cool time because there was this renaissance around him happening so you know he had this famous screening room in beverly hills and like there would be nights when you know every friday night jack nicholson was there and i got to like you know get him his drink and do whatever you know so it was it
0: was just kind of a cool like hollywood moment. Yeah. For me. So you were living the dream that you had since was you were alive. five, right? It really was, yeah. You went from Lehman Brothers, something Well, that...
1: yeah, like I said, the, 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 the hard thing was that I was a kid who loved movies and I approached my job in Hollywood as a kid who loved movies and that was probably a big mistake. <laughs> well, why do you say that? Well, just
0: because that mentality didn't fit in the system. You're working with the person you've, you've been yearning to work for, right? And you spend four years there and you have this incredible success kind of climbing the ladder, helping to run the business. Why leave? I had too many really good projects die because I was forced to hire who was
1: hot, not who was right for it. And what typically would happen would be, I remember I had, there, was a, there was a time when I had bought the rights to a book, a book that I still love to this day, which would make a great like, dark comedy, which is one of my favorite genres. And the day Variety covered the fact that we bought the book, I got a call from Sam Mendes, the director. And at the time, Paramount like, could not do a movie with Sam Mendes for anything. And he's like, this is my, I love this book, I want to do it which is, like, essentially, like, that's the fastest way to get a green light. And Hollywood getting, you know, at the time, coming off of, I think, Road to Perdition or whatever his movie after that was, like, but, you know, it's truly, like, a sought-after director. And that was, like, really exciting. And then a day later, I had a call from a writer who was, at the time, was a writer on The Sopranos. You know, and this is before TV became everything, you, you know? And he's like, this is my favorite book. I know the thing inside and out. I, I, all I want to do is adapt this into a screenplay. And the guy would work for, was willing, willing to work for scale. And I couldn't get him the job. And so at the time, we hired a great writing duo uh, who was just super, like, blazing hot at the time. And it wasn't, um, you know, I don't, it wasn't really... Um, wasn't their passion. It wasn't a fit. That, that, well, it wasn't that it wasn't a fit. It mm. just wasn't their passion. Mm. And there's one thing that this, this guy, Mike, Mike Calio, he wanted to do it. He loved it. He yeah. want, like, and that was, like, a really interesting lesson for me. Is like, there's, if you can find talent who's really passionate about something and willing to do it because it's what they want to do... Not about it's not about the money. It's about what they want to do. There's something there, and uh, and so I was disappointed that uh, I had a few incidents like that happen. I just said, uh, you, you know, looking out, you know, on the space, it just felt like people weren't going to watch movies the way they've always watched movies. People weren't going to watch television the way they always watch television. And I didn't like, one hadn't have the the financial foresight to make you know a billion dollars in the market on this idea, but um, but I kind of saw that happening, and I, I knew I knew that at some point the distribution of content was going to get disrupted. And, uh, and I said, you know, is there a way to start rethinking through young talent? Is there a way to start rethinking how, how content got created? Who was doing the creation? You know, at the time, my, the aperture on this idea was really still small. You know, my, my idea, and um, when I started Half Shell Entertainment, was, was to work with writers who, writers who were in the system already who, uh, who I couldn't get jobs for, knowing that they'd be passionate or, like, great comedy writer or whatever. And why writers specifically? You know it's a really good question it, it was i think it was mostly because those were who I had the most relationships with because i had so many experience with trying to bring young writers into a studio and not getting what i wanted out of it knowing how talented they were but the studio in every studio and every network typically hires on on resume and reputation then take you know this was take first passion first resume and reputation second so it was just a hard thing so i said "Oh, look you know i think i think there's something here But then I started, then the sort of it got, that aperture got widened and widened to start to think, you know, wow. I mean, if you're in LA and you've got an agent and you were able to get yourself a meeting at a studio, well, you've already, you're already in the, you know, that 0.1%. But the rest of the world is still out there and the rest of the world is really passionate. And I just thought, you know, they're all going to get empowered with tools really fast. Yeah. And um, if there's a way to... To provide opportunity for those people and and give them the opportunity to do what they love and connect them with the things they want to do, that feels really good, and uh, and there's a real big business there. So so yeah, I mean that's just kind of like the origin story of the whole thing. And at some point, I connected with a guy named Jack Hughes, who is a um, who is a, the first investor in this company and a board member still. And you know he had really designed the first. Community-based work model in a company called Topcoder, which was taking big enterprise software for NASA and IBM and breaking it down into smaller pieces, and they had a community of technology developers on a platform, and they'd get those jobs done. So we, like, literally, the company started on a on a you know, the back of a napkin, as a lot of them do. And he was like, "If you could, I understand what you want to do. I understand what the problem you're trying to solve." He's like, "You should take a look at what I'm trying to do." Here. And if you could
0: figure out a way to bring those two ideas together, I'd probably write the first check. And so we did, and here we are. Very cool. <laughs> you know? so, so just to clarify kind of the chain of events, you said the, this idea that entertainment is changing, right? distribution is going to be disrupted, there are these communities of people with passion who are a good fit for these types of jobs, but they're not getting them just because the way that the system and the inertia is built against that. So the small aperture idea of that, was executed through Half Shell Entertainment, which yeah. was kind of your independent. That was production.
1: That was yeah. It was like kind of a combination of ideas, right? So I'd always been obsessed with the the comedy element of the, where the Harold Ramis thing came from, and if you and what we did there was I had met the editor of the National Lampoon at the time, and you know we became fast friends, and I was like starting to understand like recently, like everybody kind of knows this story now because people have seen the documentary, and then there was a there was a, a scripted. Uh, feature with Will Arnett. Was it Will Arnett? No, uh, Will Forte, about the story of the National Lampoon. But at one point, like, every great comedic talent somehow contributed to this magazine. So it went from, you know, the, the, the uh, it kind of comes together at the same point, which is like Harold Ramis was the director of a movie called Vacation, which was written by John Hughes, which started off as a one-page article in the National Lampoon. Y- you know, if, if Dad hadn't shot Walt Disney in the leg, it would have been the greatest vacation ever. And it's a one-page article, and at some point, when the Lampoon became, like, the hot thing at the time, Warner Brothers saw that and said, there's a movie in here, and so he got his shot to write that. So I said, look, there's a huge body of things like this in this archive of magazines. So went out and got the, the rights to develop films out of, the, out of that archive and matched those up with up-and-coming comedic talent. A series of unfortunate events sort of took place there where, you can read about this in Vanity Fair, um, where the management of that organization... There was some, um, there was some semi nefarious activity you know, in terms of insider trading and a few things, and and it kind of it became like this um, you know thing nobody wanted to touch. So a lot of those projects wound up dying, uh, which was sad. But it was it was ultimately what you know one door closes another one opens. Yeah, that
0: kind of that's a shame. So those projects you're working on, but ultimately not many of them get off the ground. But the aperture on this idea is widening, and ultimately you, you realize well there's a community element here, there's a technology element here let's use the internet to connect these creatives to produce branded content, right?
1: Well, branded anything, you know, all the videos. Like like there's a way that I just looked at it and said the economics at some point don't marry up with the distribution anymore. So, it doesn't a very high end and if you're Marvel and you know or you're Lucasfilm and you can do that like god bless them. But when you start getting down to different types of content, like I would say through the entire funnel or through the sort of like the, the food chain from the from Captain Marvel to, like, you know, YouTube video you watch for three seconds. Most of that for sort of food chain, the monetization isn't pairing up with the content. So cable TV, from cable TV through basically everything else, it's, 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 really, it's really tough. And it's, it's dwindling in the sense that you've got fragmented audiences. The story I tell everybody is that, you know, in the 80s, a show like ALF, great show, Dark, written by the great Jerry Stahl, that show got an 18 rating. It was the fourth highest rated show on NBC in 1988. The number one show on TV now is like America's Got Talent. It gets like a nine. Cost to make those shows, even though like Simon Cowell's a genius and has reinvented all that in television in its wake, the cost to, to make those productions are higher than it was to make ALF. But the monetization has changed because there's two ways to pay for content. Either you pay for it or a brand pays for it, right? And so the way the brands are paying for it, it's... um at some point going to get frustrated because they're not getting the returns they used to get because the audiences just aren't there. There's a lot of inefficiency, I think, in the reporting and the data around all that, whether it's the seven-day window in terms of uh, time-adjusted viewing and ratings. Like, I don't know, if seven days seems outrageous to me, like seven minutes after the thing starts, I'm fast-forwarding. So I I think there's a lot of noise in all that, and I think brands ultimately are getting to the point where they realize that the returns are far less than they used to be. And that obviously we don't have to have the we don't have to have the philosophical argument about linear television going away at this point. For years, I felt like it did. You know, there was
0: a lot of people wanting
1: to defend that idea, but I don't think anybody buys it anymore.
0: Well, so what happens, right? I mean, I don't see linear television ever disappearing completely, but well, suddenly... I mean,
1: what's going to happen? I mean, what is going to happen?
0: I mean, because if you think about, it, if you're Disney,
1: you're, all your motivation, all your new, all your everything you're going to do is going to go to Disney Plus because they have to compete with Netflix at this point. Well. It starts to become really hard to support ABC and ESPN in that ecosystem when everything you're doing is designing that, that like I said, there's two ways to pay for it. Either the brand pays for it or, or you pay for it. The consumer says, I want to pay for it. So they're just marrying their strategy up to what the consumer wants. So I, I actually do think it's going to go away. I think there will I mean, be broadcast television. And like The interesting thing that I always forget is like if you have an antenna, TV's free. Right. You know, tv that's the one thing I wouldn't want to be in right now is TV, But but like you, you can still get ABC if you want. Mm-hmm. Just you need an antenna. So, I, you know, I don't know. I think it'll look really different. I don't think it's going to go completely go away. But I, don't, I think that I mean, I just think that every every consumer is opting to watch either commercial free or you know, ad-supported video on demand at this point. Well, there's way more content choices
0: than ever before. Yeah, the right? genie's out of the lamp, yeah. and I don't think it's ever going
1: back. So it presents a really interesting challenge in terms of if, if you're, in, in, to me, in the entire ecosystem of content, because if you're a brand, you were paying for Elf, and BC was underwriting that on your behalf. Now, you know, what's it going to look like? An audience doesn't want to watch an ad. That's unequivocally, if they do want to watch an ad, it's a it's a... It's something that's entertaining, or something that's completely off the wall, or, or whatever. And my opinion is that they have to like brands need IP and entertainment as much as entertainment needs them, and I think they need to start to cohabitate the same
0: space a little more. If that makes sense. Sure. What are some examples of that?
1: I mean, the best example is Lego
0: to me. Totally. They've uh, and reinvented they, their brand through digital and through entertainment.
1: Yeah, I mean, they've been they've been amazing at it, and and they're you know without you know, obviously they've been a big partner of ours and we've done so many Lego videos with our community, but, but if you think about it, you know, it's a toy manufacturer and they found a way to turn it into a platform for storytelling. And that came through building their own IP, but also by saying, we're gonna borrow Luke Skywalker. And you know, suddenly we've got a way to tell stories with our products and that's going to fit the, the consumption pattern of the audience in a real interesting way. I mean, the toy space is really out ahead because they didn't have a choice. You know, if you look at something like MGA and um, an LOL Surprise... Yeah, crazy. It's crazy, but it's it's totally genius. The entire, the entire product is built off of a viewing pattern. Like, I got two young girls at home, and it's crazy, you know, the amount of exuberance around this product. But it is all because, you know, Isaac Larian and whoever else found a way to marry an idea for a product to what kids were doing what kids were watching. It was like truly remarkable thing.
0: Yeah. And they've only done it for young girls, as you said, so far. So yeah. imagine the opportunities to do that for males and then expand the product category. But it's so smart. It's taking this kind of unboxing trend that's happening on YouTube and saying, there's a whole new audience. There's a whole new way to reach the people we're trying to sell toys to. And I think it did, what, $4 billion last year? It was, number one, yeah, it was
1: number one toy last Christmas.
0: Not only that, it outsold, I think, all of Disney consumer products yeah. with one single... It's nuts. Yeah.
1: But it's because they were smart enough to tie and nimble enough to tie that idea to the way people are actually beh- and then there's like this cognitive dissonance in the mark in the marketing world marketing people are it's very easy to do what you did last year it's really hard no one like it's like at paramount you don't lose your job for giving tom cruise a green light right so but if you give if you give the undiscovered writer a shot and they and they blow a big project well somebody loses their job it's the same thing that same risk aversion is probably w- way worse in marketing than it is in entertainment, is there. And so I think that was that's a really great story, but the toys have to have this idea of show-to-shelf because the entire world is so connected. Uh, and I think that other other brands are going to have to figure that out. And I think that's why you're seeing this elevation of like purpose-led brands because they have a story to tell. It's part of their DNA. They, they have something they can do. They have something they can actually connect with other people on, whereas... You know, like the marketing tactics of that are a decade old, equity pyramid, 30 seconds, brand message, you know, differentiator, get it into the thing. I, good luck.
0: Yeah. Good luck. So, what happens to Hasbro and Mattel?
1: I think they, they, they draft off of those ideas. I mean, they're both doing a great job for what it's worth. I mean, you know, the, the market's a little crazy on those things, like given the Toys R Us departure. And, and But they are both doing a really good job, I have to say, in their own way. I mean, if you look at what Mattel's done recently in terms of rebuilding the film franchise like i'm pretty excited for masters of the universe i don't know if that's going to translate to a new generation definitely translate to a nostalgic generation um, but i think that's good i think that's good for the parents of younger people today will will have that passed down they call it the pass through or pass down effect and i think that that could work
0: well let's go back to the origin story of Tongle because i want to sure. understand a little bit more of what happened here so you co-founded the business in 2008 alongside mark burrell and rob Salvatore. how did you guys meet what was the we were friends in inspiration okay
1: yeah, we were friends in college, and, um, you know, I sort of, like, in a lot of ways, dragged those guys into this. Uh, Mark, was, um, Mark was at Warner Brothers at the time, and he was kind of experiencing the same thing I was, and um, Rob had a little bit of a different perspective on it. He kind of came from the world of financial restructuring. So he could see sort of the inefficiency and in how things were operating. And like, if you looked at it with like, kind of like that financial lie, like, hey, here's where there's so much waste here. This has to get more efficient. So we just got sort of like connected on the idea. And that's how it all came together.
0: And so legend has it that the name comes from an anagram of the social scientist Sir Francis Galton's surname. How did you guys, is that true? <laughs> it's first like of all? the
1: most esoteric and like biggest mistake I've ever made in my entire life because I've had to explain it so many times. Uh-huh. My elevator answer is that it actually means cutting edge in Japanese, Tangaru. <laughs> um, so that's the easy one. But uh, yeah, I know, you know, it's tough to find. I was, we we're really inspired by the book Wisdom of Crowds. Have you, have you read it? If you know the book, this guy, Jim Sirwicky, who, if you read The New Yorker, writes the financial page. Brilliant guy. and actually became a good friend for a while. He wrote the book, and there's an introduction in the, in the, in the book about this guy, Sir Francis Galton, who was sort of setting out to prove that, you know, in a weird way, setting out to prove that crowds needed to be controlled. The, like unruly masses together, like in some weird, like dystopian agenda or something. But he went to the story. They did this at TED a while back. But they, uh, the story was that he went to a country fair uh, in the English countryside, and there was a lot of uh, agrarian people, farmers, and 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 that sort of thing there. And there was a competition to guess the weight of an ox. So what he did was he took the average of everybody's guess, and what he found was the average was was closer to the actual weight of the animal than the best individual individual guess. guess. Uh-huh. So then he changed his, he completely changed, he had this like, you know, change of heart and all his research went again to go to prove that intelligent and motivated groups of people are always smarter than the smartest person in them. And so that was inspiring to us. And so it also was a, you know, a five-letter uh, domain name that was available,
0: which is a good, which was a good, uh, which was a good opportunity. Yeah, important at the time. Very good. Well, and it, it speaks perfectly to the ethos of, uh, it really does. And the, you know the thing that you're trying to build in the first place.
1: Yeah, I mean, the business is really built on the idea that there's talent everywhere and there's good ideas everywhere. And, and you know, I usually tell people it's the, the business exists. It's sort of the combination of both Moore's Law, which I think everyone's pretty familiar with, and Joy's Law. So most people aren't familiar with Joy. Joy's Law is credited to Bill Joy, the founder of Sun Microsystems, who said famously, the smartest people work for somebody else. <laughs> um, so, so we're kind of like, yeah, a little bit of both. And that's really kind of the guiding principle is, is, you know, how do you tap external talent? How do you organize that idea? And, uh, and then what can they do? Because suddenly, you know, a camera package that costs $20,000 a day 10 years ago is now in everybody's pocket. It's funny because, like, you wouldn't have seemed like a genius if you had said, hey, we're going to have 4K cameras in our pockets. Like, everyone kind of saw that pattern. But to me, like, the interesting thing about technology is that I never would have thought in a million years that I would own a helicopter that takes movies right And think what drones have changed. I mean, think about the, the effect that something as cheap now as a drone has had on cinematography. It's nuts. But all that cost is sudden, because of technology, all that cost has been stripped out of the overhead of doing something. So you would think that the cost of production would start to shrink, but it's going the other way.
0: Yeah, you look at the last season of Game of Thrones, which premieres this Sunday, they're spending more per episode than ever before.
1: Yeah, I think it's mostly spent because of talent content, which is great. You want the talent to make a lot of money, but you're not really, I mean, there's,
0: there's no scale. <laughs> there's no, you know. Most of these large premium entertainment producers aren't making their money on the content anymore, right? This is all driving theme parks. It's driving consumer products. In many ways, it's well, just a really the, expensive ad for what you're going to buy downstream.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the, the show or the movie is really just the st- for, for good franchise management. The show or the movie is really just a starting off point. The thing that I like about what we're doing is that we give the IP owner the ability to treat every franchise like it was Star Wars. Because suddenly you have the ability to tell, because, the, because the production model matches the distribution model, you could have, have because of, and because we have the big fan bases on our, on our platform, you have the ability to tell more stories off of your IP. Whereas in the system, that's five years. So it's like if you're, if you're a studio and you're lucky enough to have a big hit... Well, and then you assemble this, you spend a lot, You spend a hundred million dollars to assemble an audience. Forget about the production cost of the film. And then you get the hit. Well, that audience is sort of left in a lurch for two to four years until like the next thing. So all the there's a huge revenue opportunity that's being missed, as you said, like, yeah, consumer products, it's a huge part of it. But there's a there's an entertainment piece that can be had in the middle that I think most studios are missing.
0: So are you helping them with that? How does the technical process work? Yeah, Have I mean just them? I mean
1: look, because our community is a lot of them are a huge you know, film fans and so they're all passionate about certain titles and certain things. I don't know if you if you've seen any of these like this Alien series that we've done. But we've worked with Fox, we partnered with Fox and we said, so We look, we wanna tell more female protagonists, because Alien is, you know, it's like this sort of blue collar female protagonist space movie. And we said, All right, well, our community can do that. And the films are remarkable. And they're done on a really tight budget and kudos to all the filmmakers for pulling it off. But they're cinematic. And if you just look at the YouTube comments on some of these videos, it's like this is what the fan base wanted. Well, there's a big opportunity in the middle. I don't know when the next Alien film is coming up, but there's a big opportunity to continue to draft off. You've done the hard. It's like you've done the hard part. You got the hit. That's the hardest thing in the world to do. Now, monetizing it should be a lot easier. A reliable Wi-Fi connection is as vital as your wallet. With Skyrim, you won't be trapped in a cafe or wander for Wi-Fi again. For work or fun, the Solus 4G LTE Wi-Fi hotspot has you covered with fast Wi-Fi across the U.S. and in 130 countries. And with its built-in power bank, devices stay charged on the go. Get data by the day, month, or gig. No contracts. Go to skyroam.com slash techpod to save 20% off of Solus with code techpod20. Business Insider calls it a must-have travel gadget. Visit skyroam.com slash techpod. Offer code techpod20.
0: And do you find that when you engage with an entertainment company like Fox, is this falling under a marketing spend or is this actually driving monetization in that it pays for the project and then some?
1: Everything's different. Yeah. There, there are some things that we're doing that are they're directly in the path of monetization. There are th- some things like the Fox one's an interesting example. That's like kind of their franchise group. It's not marketing and it's not because they, they don't have a place for it yet. It's It's not a, it's not a feature. <laughs> you know, it's not a home entertainment title. Yeah. It actually is now. It's they're actually wrapping it onto uh, a special release, so it, it has monetization in terms of home entertainment. But it's not like it's not what they do. So there's this weird middle ground. That I, anyway, that I think that represents a pretty big opportunity.
0: Yeah. So you've been pretty outspoken about how you find these inefficiencies in the traditional Hollywood model. You think that it's outdated and needs to evolve. Are you finding people in the traditional entertainment world who share that belief and are working to change it from the inside? How is that uh, message received?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, I think it's being received differently in different places. I mean, I just think that, you know, I'm not that much of an anarchist, but I do have this, like, I, I mean, I'm trying to be in the business of good karma and giving people their shot. I mean, that's a really good business to be in, especially people who really want to do something. So there, there is this idea where, you know, and look, first of all, no one respects talent as much as I do. And every level, every level in the entire, you know, ecosystem. But the issue is that the talent and the costs aren't marrying up with the revenue opportunity. Even, like, Netflix does not release information on how many people have, like, watched a show. But I guarantee most of those shows are, as you said, they're marketing for people to subscribe to Netflix. I don't know how they attribute those costs to each show, but... But at some point, like, there's – I just don't know how you can program for a niche audience that way for that long and, and have it – like, the, my issue at Paramount always was, like, nobody looks at – all anybody looks at is, like, Bafo box office. Nobody looks at the profitability of the movie. And that's why, like, at that time is when really a lot of the, um, like, the low-budget horror movies really took off because they were huge money makers because yeah. you could make it for less than $5 million bucks and you could do 30 at the box office and you could finance half the thing through foreign sales because horror traveled. And, uh, and it was a really profitable business to be in. So no, and that audience
0: like, is hungry. They don't get enough content. Exactly. Yeah.
1: Exactly. So it, it's, it's a little bit of the same thing, but I think on a smaller scale.
0: So we're right in the midst of this, uh, on protracted negotiations between the Writers Guild and the agencies, particularly WME, since mm-hmm. they tend to represent a lot of the yeah. big writers. What is your take on that? What's going to happen?
1: There's a lot of different arguments and a lot of different sides of, the, of that argument that I probably don't even want to touch. <laughs> um but you know the agencies control the talent, which means they control the town. And um, it's funny if you look at the evolution of talent in Hollywood. It started off as like, hey, you've got a three-picture deal here at MGM. You're an MGM player. And then you know Wasserman breaks that up, and it becomes the talent becomes empowered. And and that was awesome. But suddenly it's the agencies that really become empowered because they're you know they, they can't make money unless they package a show now. So I mean like even if you, if you're a I mean if you're a star you know 10% of what you make is is good but it's not a crazy business so so there has to be this way to generate because all the, the packaging fees and the and the um you know especially in things like um syndication you know that's going again with with the with the sort of the destruction of that model that that stuff has started to dry up whereas in the 90s that was like hey if you're syndicating friends I mean it's hundreds of millions of dollars and so that's starting to change so I think that it, I don't know I just think it's a really interesting time and I, I don't necessarily have a prediction of what's going to happen but uh but it's definitely uh, definitely watching.
0: It's really changing. I think there's some frustration because it seems like, you know, the agencies do a little bit of work one time, and then they get this kind of ongoing royalty, whereas the yeah, talent...
1: Yeah, it's like the agents, they, but like the, the reality is, like, right now, if you're an agent at whatever big agency, they, they don't take anybody who... They don't build... Like, managers, like managers build people's careers, right? I mean, and obviously, agents do a great job, but they're, they're not, they don't take a lot of risk early on. They don't have the bandwidth to do it. So, if you're Bill Murray, you don't have an agent. That's all I have to say.
0: What's coming next for the future of the media and entertainment space? What are some predictions you have, thinking three to five years out?
1: Uh, well, I think the next the next two years is probably a continuing arms race for talent, and a lot of probably irrational exuberance and spending. That's probably because the the big players well, you have like the big you basically have Disney versus Netflix, and you have Netflix needing right because Netflix kind of has like the the senior citizen problem, where they're on a fixed income, right? So, so they're able to finance this because the stock is so good and has such a high multiple. They're able to finance this stuff. And a lot of it's done, through, mostly done through debt, which is, which is really, which is interesting. But then all the media companies are totally stacked with debt at this point. So any change in the market would be really, really uh, interesting, potentially destructive. I feel like you have Netflix needing to act a lot more like Disney because they'll need that ancillary revenue attached to those titles that they're investing. They have to act like an IP owner and monetize the IP outside of platform. And then you have Disney obviously acting more like Netflix. So I think you you'll see probably more consolidation. I think consolidation is a signal in an industry that is declining in a lot of ways. So I think if you look at like the Disney Fox merger, you know, a lot of it, a lot of the the, the bloodshed has been in like kind of ad sales. I mean, doesn't make, it's not a surprise, right? So it's like they probably looked at each other and said at some point the dollars are dwindling here. It's a huge component of our business. We're competing against each other, selling the same thing to the same Procter & Gamble and Unilever and the buyers of something like that. So it makes sense to consolidate. So I think you could see continued consolidation. And that, that consolidation could be you know everything from Apple buying anybody to,
0: you know, I, I don't CBS know. CBS Viacom feels like it's ultimately going to
1: get done. Yeah. You know? it, uh, yeah. It, it, that, that, to me, just continues to happen, and I think you have a lot more irrational exuberance around spending in, in, in like, literally an arms race. Mm. What about Amazon? They're very stealthy and secret, and they're dangerous. Because, to me, they have the connection between... They have the, like, show-to-shelf, which I've paid attention to just because I've been so intimately, you know, wrapped into the toy business for, like, unsuspectingly for the past five years or whatever. They have that connect. It's like... Hey, you you know, you guys just watched, you know, The Force Awakens. Well, here's the, you know, here's that uh, Ray doll. Here's the lunchbox, mom and dad. And they can, they have the ability to connect your viewing behavior, entertainment to purchase, which I think is, is crazy and and a big opportunity for everybody. Yeah. And and as you see, the Amazon ad platform starting to grow. It's funny they don't get a lot of all the noise is on Disney and Netflix and and which I think is just the way they like it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. 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 And and yet they won an Oscar before Netflix did. Right. I think they consistently punch above their weight class in TV for the amount that they're spending relative to Netflix and, and, you know, the aspirational set like Apple. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: What else? And what do you think about Apple? I mean, like Apple, you know, people are like Apple is a hardware business. Yeah. What do they want to get into the content business?
0: Oh, I think Apple is in the midst of an identity crisis, which Mm. they need to uh, settle pretty quickly. It's so hard because Amazon and Netflix I mean you would have thought they would have made a car, not Oh I think not, they still yeah. I think they still will. Yeah. Right? I mean I, I think they have an autonomous division and there's a chance for them to compete there against Google. Apple to me has a ton of cash and for that reason they have a lot of flexibility. The challenge is I don't know that they have the DNA to figure out entertainment, right? I, I would, I, we said the same things early on about Netflix and Amazon, but I think they put in the time and they made the huge financial investment to figure it out. Mm-hmm. It seems like Apple, it's a huge risk to to enter this late and to try and compete at that level. Yeah.
1: I mean, my, my guess is they acquire.
0: Yeah, I think they have to. They're competitive in the music space. I think they have a huge chance. I mean, look
1: what happened there. But that's hardware and software. Sure. You know?
0: Yeah, but they also have the billing relationships, right? Like through the Apple ecosystem, they were early in podcasts. Uh, They were early in kind of the marketplace concept of app development. So they've got a strong lead in terms of owning the operating system and owning this platform on which a lot of the other entertainment purchases occur. Yeah, I mean, owning the pipe is, is paramount. Yeah, especially for international, right? A lot of people fixate on the domestic market. Yes, they have a huge advantage here, but when it comes to kind of the leverage that Microsoft exercised in the 80s, 90s, 2000s, that's the type of leverage that Google and Apple have internationally yeah. that I think other people don't
1: understand. <laughs> you know, it's it's. it's, it's cr- I mean, I don't know, like, that, I think mean, that's really interesting to watch. You know, what's the future of cable television? I think the future of cable television probably looks like your subscriptions are Netflix, Hulu, <laughs> Disney Plus, and a few. The interesting thing about Disney is that if you remember, and I'm older than you, if you remember, like when basic cable came out, like the only ad-supported cable station was Disney, and people paid for it. So they'll do it again. That'll be interesting to watch. But if you're, you know, kind of like the, you know, average cable station, I don't know what happens.
0: I right? agree. Amazon wins. Netflix wins. Disney Plus can succeed. What I'm worried about is what's happening with all these other companies that are trying to get direct to consumer, Viacom buying Pluto TV, others trying to stand up their own SVOD services. If you don't have the strength of the programming brand that the consumer understands, I don't think you have a chance at launching a VOD platform.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, but unless there's a way to wrap it up into something else, because I do think having selection based on choices, like even... You know, on Amazon, like, you can buy subscriptions on top of Amazon. So there's an argument to be made that Amazon becomes cable TV because they have the muscle to do it. Because I subscribe to the Sundance channel on Amazon. The interesting thing is, like, you know, if you're in the cable business, like, how do you see the show? Because most people aren't behaving like it's tune in at whatever time.
0: So do you think that there's going to be more aggregation, more curation as the...
1: Curation, I think, is, is the most important thing that can happen right now. It's, it's, it is, it's infinite scroll. And it's infinite scroll, and it's so you rely more on third
0: parties—the Roku's, the Amazons.
1: Yeah, yeah. It, you rely on reviews more. You know, it's interesting, like all that stuff, you, you word of mouth is 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 probably you know a premium at this point. But yeah, no, there's there's no way to there's no there's so much content, but there's so much. The cool thing is that like if you're super into whatever, there's programming for you now. Yeah, you know that's and that's kind of like the internet, right? The internet starts. It's proliferated by like fish fins at some point, right? Because it's like people who are just super into some weird little thing and they can find, they find like the internet's cool because you can find somebody just like you out there. Yeah. And and that's and that's that's pretty cool. So now I think what you're seeing is like entertainment mapping to that.
0: Well, and it's giving birth to these new formats. Like who would have thought people would want to watch other people go shopping or play video games or unbox a toy, yeah. right? And that's this explosion. Unbox a toy thing. I mean,
1: but again, the video game, like, I don't know, when I was 12 years old, I'd sit around in my buddy's living room and be like, all right, you know, can you, can you beat Mario Brothers blindfolded or whatever,
0: right?
1: <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, just behavior finding its way into a video.
0: Sure. What does the future hold for Tangle?
1: Uh, right now, we're, we're, really, um, we're really excited for where we're at. I think we're, we'll be bringing in a lot more platform partners in the next six to 12 months, which is really exciting. We're, we're, I think we're really ready to exploit that, what I said earlier, which is the cohabitation of entertainment and advertiser. Like that, being separate is a hard business to be in right now, and it's a, obviously a hyper-competitive business that has to figure itself out. There's a big opportunity to bring the two together because of because of the issues on both sides of that sort of um, that relationship, right? Because if you're a brand, the the your typical communication pattern's been disrupted. For an entertainment company, your monetization has been completely changed overnight. So how can you then take the things that are working and get? find a way to make more money out of it and i think they they the brands need to borrow from culture and you know entertainment companies have culture to lend so like they'll, they'll find their way together i think you'll find a lot more brand in light brand integration I, I think what like patagonia is doing is awesome to me that's like dead on and they're not a customer i wish they were they're, they're, so it's dead on telling their the people that are passionate about that brand stories that relate to them it's almost like in order to be relevant, you have to either entertain or inform somebody, and they're doing a good job of both. And that's why that, I think that the, the affinity for that brand's is like the highest it's ever been at this point. So I think like things that you'll see a lot more. Like they just released uh, or were about to release. Um, A film called Artificial, which is, you know, which is an examination of salmon farming practices and stuff like that. So I think that's speaking to their audience and giving their audience, creating value and entertainment for their audience and informing them and making them more aligned to their purpose. So I think like that stuff is,
0: that's the cool stuff. So you've been in the business, right? Started eight years ago. Uh, I think you're two days into the CEO role
1: and well it's, it's more like six
0: months, but okay Fair <laughs> enough, <laughs> officially enough, sure. so uh, so tell us a little bit more about that change and kind of your vision for that next evolution of Tomball.
1: look my my vision is still aligned to the initial vision, which is there has to be a content creation model that maps to the distribution of and consumption of content right It was if you're gonna, if create if the consumption's going to change, somebody has to change the creation. it has to be It's like you have a, this exponential problem which is growing channels and fragmented audiences. And you can't have a linear, no pun intended, solution to that. It has to, it has to be an exponential sort of model to map to that. And that's, and that's really what we're digging into. So, I mean, I, I, we're going to really develop our community. We're really going to develop the tools we have in our technology. And, and I'm just excited to bring more and more partners on for, you know,
0: in the short term. If you were starting a business in the digital media space today, what would you do?
1: I don't know if it would be digital media space, but I was talking to a friend today. I was like, somebody needs to create Tongle for construction, I and mean, I can't believe the variance. I was—he was telling me story about of remodeling his like backyard. I can't believe the variance in bids and quotes, and for literally the same exact job, there's no organization. Just a market that there's no organization around. That's a free one for your audience. if so Somebody <laughs> wants to jump on that. Um, but I, I think I—I I don't know. I would start to think of in the media space. I'd probably start thinking about how to how to make the. Sort of subscription process more palatable to to
0: feel more like cable TV. How so? Well, like, I where think, like the skinny bundle. Comes yeah, I, I just
1: I think there's got to be a way to. I mean, if I was Comcast, I would say, well, why don't we just leverage our subscriber base to buy all these other things? To buy to offer every 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 individual Svod Avod thing. But it's weird because they're tied into they're tied into old contracts and.
0: Yeah. Well, it seems like the early leaders there now are YouTube TV, which I think has actually been surprisingly very successful. Yes. And it has a really good user experience. If you still want to watch live TV and pay a fraction of the cost of what you were paying, it's a great solution. The other things that stand out to me is the bundling efforts by the telco operators, right? You see Verizon and AT&T making a big play there, and they'll give you, you know, free HBO or whatever it is, free Hulu, with your, with your phone Yeah, it's like,
1: like in the 70s when you go to the bank and, like, you open a checking account and they give you a color TV.
0: Yeah. <laughs>
1: <It's> <laughs> well,
0: <laughs> I think the telcos have... Uh, they're, they're taking a hard look in the mirror right now because... The average revenue per subscriber is dropping, Mm -hmm. and they're desperate to keep people on the phones. and and Media and content is a great way to do that, but they're trying to cast about for how do we get people to pay for these data plans? How do we continue to maximize the revenue we're getting from each individual subscriber? We'll see. We'll see what happens. James, where can people find out more about you and more about Tongle?
1: Our website. Any? uh, There's lots of news about us out there. A lot of good stories. There's There's a few books like. A good friend of mine, Peter Diamandis, I don't know if you know Peter, he wrote a book called Bold, which has a pretty good, like a lot of the story we talked about is written, is in that book in a a chapter. Um, He's always been a big fan of this, so it's a kind of cool thing to see, so little things like that are out there. We're out there.
0: Well, thanks for taking the time and sharing your story about how you guys are working to shake up the entertainment model. It's cool, and I think there's definitely this, uh, the approach of matching the right talent who's passionate about an opportunity with the stories, with the brand IP, you can create some incredible things together.
1: Yeah, com- completely. Like, if the revenue opportunity for the video is $5,000, well, then you have to have a way to produce a video for less than $5,000 in order for it to be sustainable.
0: So that's, that's it doesn't take, like, you know, canes to figure that out. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, thanks again. This was a blast, and I uh, really appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks, James. Thanks for tuning in. I'm James Creech, and this has been another edition of All Things Video. If you like what you hear, we hope you'll share and subscribe for new episodes. See you next time.